What's up, gang? Great to see you guys this morning. Y'all look so good. And uh, today we're going to continue our series uh, on the hope of heaven. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Um, if you're kind of new to this church thing, and maybe you have a Bible, but you're not sure exactly where books are found, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. And you can turn to chapter 2, which is the big numeral. And then in a few moments, we're going to start in verse 8, which is the small numeral. But as you're turning there, I want to kind of just put a phrase in your mind that we're going to revisit several times today. And I want you to think about it and ponder on it because it's really important that you're able to grasp this concept as we start. Okay, and here it is. Heaven today is not what it was and it's not what it will be. Heaven today is not what it was and it's not what it will be. Today, we hope to answer a couple of those questions, okay? If heaven today is not what it was, then what was it? If heaven today is not what it will be, then what will it be? And if it's not what it was, and it's not what it will be, then what is it today? Y'all got that? And so we're going to go on a journey and kind of explore this throughout the text. And today, we want to set the stage for next week, which is what it will be. And we'll get there just a glimpse of it today, but today let's start with what it was. If you got your Bibles, you should be in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to get in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. It was in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Apparently God forms the man, then places him in Eden, and it says, And out of the ground... The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, if you have your Bibles and you're okay with writing in them, underline the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. It is also that there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you have these two trees. Now, we know from earlier in this text that Adam, prior to even the creation of Eve, was forbidden to eat of the tree of, the good, of, uh, of knowledge of evil. And the reason why is God says, because surely if you eat of it, you're going to die. And so we know that there was a forbidden tree. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There it is. It lies in the midst of this garden. Now, here's what's interesting. It goes on in verse 10 and says this, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first one was Pishon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the golden land is good. Now, I read that, and the way I read the Bible, I didn't know that there was bad gold. I thought all gold was good. I would take like a, like you might go, well, hey, how's your day? What do you need? I'm like, I need a big bag of gold. That's what I need, okay? Good gold. But it says there was good gold. Bdellium, onyx stone, they're there. It says the name of the second river is the Gihon, and the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And then there's the third river, which is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, as we read this, we know that there is a garden in which God and man exist together. And not only do they exist together, but we also know that there's the tree of life and that there's God's presence and that man is in relationship to God. Now, What's interesting is, is we might want to try to pinpoint the location, and, and Moses certainly gives us some idea as he explains Genesis chapter 8. 
And we would say, okay, the, the Garden of Eden might have been, uh, for sure, where we would locate two rivers geographically today, which is the Tigris and the Euphrates, somewhere in what we would know as modern-day Iraq. Now, we know that what happens next in Genesis chapter 3 is going to take and destroy what we know as the first heaven. The first heaven was Eden. And when you have Eden, you have this incredible garden with luxurious rivers. Uh, you have spectacular nature and gold, medallium and onyx stone. You have everything that you would need to survive. In it, the tree of life, which is a sustaining tree that gives eternal perspective and everlasting life. And yet there's this one tree that's the challenge. It's forbidden. Everything else is enjoyable. And it is in many ways what you would consider unbelievable bliss. God in relation to man, no sin, no pain, eternal, everlasting life. The place where you could come, there's no thorns or thistles. There's no hardship or pain or turmoil. There's no death, disease. There's nothing that's a pestilence that eats your fruit. It's all yours and it's all available. And you come and you go and you rule and you sub. Uh, oversee the whole uh, rule of the earth. Everything is under your dominion. And it is amazing. Now, real quickly, I didn't put this in my notes, but I said in the first service, that I think it's just important to note real quickly. We oftentimes struggle in this day and time to reconcile the Bible and science. Now, I happen to be uh, a, well, a creationist that would be okay with a young earth, um, and so what I mean by that, I personally would date the earth about 6,000, maybe 6,500 years old. Um, I know that some of you are like, well, that kind of conflicts with what's being taught in our science classes. But let, can I just explain why I don't think those things necessarily differ? And here's why. Now, I think the first question you got to ask yourself is, is in the Garden of Eden, when God placed man in the garden and then he brought about mature trees, how old was Adam when he was placed in the garden? And then when God makes trees and they're mature, how old are those trees? If you have a God who is everlasting outside of space and time and he enters into space and time to create something out of nothing, what does he create? I think he creates mature trees. Well, how do you... How do you date or carbon date a mature tree that God created? That seems nearly impossible, right? Um, it would be reasonable to believe that you could carbon date a tree to be several hundred years old, or potentially you could take fragments of the earth and make them a million years old with no problem when you have an everlasting God. Now, here's one other thing just to think about that. God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I think one of the challenges about our timeline, just naturally out of the gate, is, is we see God creates everything out of uh, nothing. Six days, rests on the seventh. Man and uh, woman live in the garden, and all of a sudden a tormentor comes, deceives them. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is forbidden, and now everything blows up. The question is, is did that happen in a matter of days or weeks or a handful of years? Or perhaps maybe they had this relationship for a long time. I mean, after all, one day is like a thousand years with the Lord. So how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before what happens next in Genesis 3 transpired? See, in our linear reading, we start in Genesis 1, we see creation. Genesis 2, we see creation. Uh, Genesis 3, we see sin. 
And as a result of that, we like to speed up the timeline, but the reality is, is these things don't have to be incongruent. We can live in an earth that is created 6,000, 6,500 years ago and also know that the earth that is now sustainable here has potentially been in existence for far longer, and that's not a problem. They don't have to compete together, actually, because we have no idea at all how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, and we have no idea what a mature earth looks like when God spoke it into existence. So that's how I get there. That's just extra. Y'all can, y'all can drop something in the offering plate more as a bonus. I don't know. I'm, like, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so you know that this garden is in the east, and then look what happens next. After Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, flip over one page to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to pick up after they've sinned and after they've experienced the curses and the consequence of sin in verse 22 and following. After they've sinned, the Lord God then said in verse 22 of chapter 3, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In the first heaven, there was no recollection of good and evil. Evil didn't exist. It was all good. It was, in many ways, what you would think of heaven to be. It wasn't until after Adam and Eve sinned, they had their eyes open. And so prior, they were naked, didn't even have to be clothed because they had experienced nothing that would, in many ways, ruin the relationship to God. There was no shame. There was no hiding. There was nothing that took the heaven that was in Eden and distorted it until sin happens. Now they see good and evil. And it says, but now lest he reach out his hand and also take the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So in order for something not to be a permanent state, it is apparent that because of their eyes being opened, one of the things that God guarded Adam and Eve from doing was touching the tree of life. I don't know if it's because it would have made it a permanent solution and it would have been a fixed thing for them that the consequences they experienced there would have been everlasting? I don't know. We do know that the tree of life has some sort of effect that it was best that Adam and Eve had nothing to do with it in its presence. Therefore, you see the Lord God, verse 23, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out, verse 24, the man and the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every... Uh, every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Here's what I know. They were in heaven. It was heaven and earth together, God and man together. They sinned, and now Eden is removed. It has cherubim placed in front of it. We know right now Eden is not in Mesopotamia or in Iraq. It's not something that we can tangibly go to in this very moment because God took God and man, and there was a separation. And what you experience now is the curse of sin. And the curse of sin has many things, not just thorns and thistles and labor pain and enmity and strife between husband and wife. It also is that there is death, physical death. Man will now come to an end. Our days are numbered, and our life is amidst. It comes and it goes quickly and swiftly. Prior to that, you didn't have that. You had everlasting life. We also know that now there is a chance of spiritual death, which means we are separated from God. What used to be together is now a chasm. And as a result of that, that's the day we now live in. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we live in a day where man and God are not together. 
And so we know those things to be true. Now, what's interesting, though, is this, is that you still see glimpses of God throughout the Bible where he does come near to man. Uh, there are some isolated events. Some of them are numbered. Um, and, but here's the deal. You remember uh, Moses? Where, where did God first meet with him? In a burning bush, right? Limited fragment, but they, yet God and man met. Um, if you remember Moses on Sinai, he met with God, even desired to see the face of God. God said, no, you can't see my face. Hit him in the cliff of the rock and pass by. There's a limited moment. We know that Israel eventually had the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory of God met with a limited group of people. It was also a limited time in history. Eventually, the Shekinah glory of God would meet with the people of Israel, particularly the high priests and the Levites and the temple. So it moved from the tabernacle to the temple. That was also a small fragment of time. God's dwelling place on earth left in Ezekiel chapter 10. We didn't see God's presence among the people again until his son, the incarnate word, came in flesh and dwelt among us. That also was a limited time, but God was among us. Now, here's the deal. You have these limited times where God is with his people. Now, we know here how is God dwelling amongst people on earth. Well, he's doing it through the church, the temple not built by human hands. And so he dwells now among us in our lives by his Holy Spirit. And we are the light that the world sees. And so the meeting place for others who are in darkness to come to know light is happening through us. We are created by God, through God, and for God. Colossians chapter 1. As a result of that, we live in a day where God's presence is not still in all of its fullness. Now, I say that to say that you have to ask yourself, okay, if the first heaven was Eden, then what is it that we're dealing with now? Well, do you remember when Jesus in Luke chapter 22, or sorry, Luke chapter 23, was hanging on the cross and he had two thieves. One of them belittled him and mocked him and jeered him and said, hey, if you are who you are, why don't you save yourself and save us? Which another thief then said, hey, what are you doing? Like, don't you have any regard for God? Don't you have any respect for who God is? This man has done nothing uh, wrong. We are here because we have done something wrong. And to which then he asked, this thief says, would you, would you rem remember me in your kingdom? And to which Jesus replies in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, these words. And he said to him, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Everybody say paradise. 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 Now, the paradise is a Greek word uh, which um, is really comes out of a Persian word, and the word is uh, paradisos, paradisos. And as you, as you think about that word, you go, okay, paradise. Well, how many times is it found in Scripture? It's only found three times in Scripture. Jesus says it there. Um, you also see Paul share about it when he was caught up to paradise. And then you, you see it in Revelation chapter 2 one other time. That's it. And so when you see this word, you see paradise. So you got to ask yourself, well, what is paradise? If Jesus says to the thief on the cross, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise, then what is it? And if it's not what it was, and it's not what it will be, then what can we learn from it? And today, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time is just looking and going, hey, what do we know about paradise? What do we know to be true about 
the heaven or the paradise that there is today, that means if you and I were to die today, what would we experience before we experience what will be? And today, I hope you give you a little glimpse of it. I'm going to be bouncing around. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip to the end to Revelation chapter 5. We'll camp there in a few moments. Before you get to Revelation chapter 5, let me just tell you real quickly uh, where, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about this. I mentioned this last week as well. But Paul says, I know that there was a man that was caught up into paradise. He's speaking of the third person about himself. And that's the second time that you see that word. He was caught up to paradise. So we know for sure and definitively could say, though paradise is outside of space and time, it is somewhere up. And so we see Paul caught up into paradise. He heard things that he cannot be told, which man may not utter. So we know very little about paradise from Paul other than it's upward. But we do know that Paul longs to be with Christ. And we know Christ is in paradise because that's what Christ said to the thief on the cross. I'm going to paradise and you'll be with me also. So we know Christ is there. We also know from other scriptures that Christ sits at the right hand of God. And he is there sitting with God at the right hand. So Christ is there. And not only is Christ there, but Paul says, I would rather be there because to depart and be with Christ is far better. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Verses 21 through 23. I'll put them for you up on the screen just so you can see it and read along. It says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall, shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul says, I'm a light in the world of darkness, and that's a good thing, uh, but to be with Christ is far better. So we know that the heaven and paradise that exists today is far better than what we experience on earth. Can we get an amen? Praise the Lord. Like, yeah, that's like, thank you. Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes it this way in chapter 5, verses 6, 6 through 8, which we also discussed briefly last week. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul says our longing is to be away from this body. This body of death is what he would call it. And he goes, and we would long to be in our heavenly home, a home with God. And that's better by far. And what's interesting is Paul is just denoting the fact that if you and I die, we're with the Lord. That means that we don't have some soul sleep. It's not that our, our bodies go into the ground, our soul goes with it until a certain time. It, it is indicative that we are with the Lord in paradise upon our death if we are believers in Christ. Now, you might ask the question, okay, well, what, what else could we presume to be true about paradise? And I would say this, if you know that the first heaven was created with good things, bdellium and onyx stone, and you see the presence of God there, then certainly we would certainly conclude that that was a good thing. And likely you see other semblances of that even in the Old Testament. When God dwelt among the people in the tabernacle, they took fine woods and overlaid them with gold for all the articles in the temple. Uh, we know that the veil was of great quality, splendor, splendorous colors. It was uh, intricately woven. All of these things are representation of who God is. You see even more of that in the temple. You see that all of these things represent the splendor of God. And so I would presume to believe that whatever is happening in the here and now as well is a, an incredible sight. We get just a glimpse of that 
in Revelation chapter 4. So in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, this is John who is speaking. Now, Paul says I, he was caught up to the third heaven, and he can't tell us anything about it. He can't even speak words. John, though, is also caught up to heaven, and he gives us a great deal of information about what he sees. He also lays out a timeline in Revelation chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 on what the eschatology of the end times is going to look like. Eschatology is a very big word for end times chart. In, in many ways, it's just a timeline. And so we're not going to go into great links on the timeline. If you would like to have more information about the timeline, you can go to our website and visit our Revelation series that I did a handful of years ago. You can go check that out. We did cover all 22 chapters, and I'm not going to do that today. So if you have questions, I'll be out in the lobby. We'd love to have a little conversation with you, answer some questions about the timeline if you'd like. But that's not going to happen today. So if that's what you hope for, you're going to be disappointed. So what are we discussing? We're going to discuss in the midst of this timeline somewhere, which is even difficult to pinpoint with precise accuracy, what is transpiring in this intermediate heaven, the land of in-between, between the Garden of Eden and the new heaven and new earth, what we had experienced today. Look what John says in Revelation chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. There's the phrase, come up here. So we know it's up again. And I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, when I was in the Spirit, uh, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of, look at these amazing qualities, Jasper, Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. And so we, what we do see is a, an amazing view of what the present reality would look like. Although it's very difficult for John to put into words and even... More difficult for our minds to comprehend, it is a, an amazing thing. So we know for sure that the heaven today is not only a place, it's not merely a euphemism, it's not merely metaphorical, it's a place that is real and it is incredible. We presume to believe that if we were to show up there today, you would see God, Jesus sitting at the right hand, 24, uh, 24 elders encircled about him, and it continues on. In verse 6, and it says, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. The fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, and around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And I presume if we were to show up there, we would see a somewhat of what John sees, and then we would see not only these 24 elders, but we would see cherubim and seraphim, angelic beings saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, real quickly, go back to Eden. When he removed and drove out man from Eden and he put in front of the tree of life, what did he put there? Cherubim. Now, why is that? It seems to be that it was it's just something that around the presence of God and his nature, there's going to be cherubim and angelic beings there around him. You see even Old Testament references when Elijah had a, 
uh, an encounter with God. You see just an amazing picture of that. Now, I certainly would love to give you greater detail of that, but I can't. In Revelation chapter 5, though, then John um, hears this conversation, and the conversation is around who's going to open the scrolls, who's going to break the seals, which is going to escort in judgment for the earth. Now, that too hasn't happened yet, um, at least in my timeline. And so as a result of that, we see something kind of futuristic. But one of the questions that, that is being asked is, who is worthy? John begins to cry. And then somebody pipes up when the elder says, listen, no, don't worry. There is one who is worthy to open the seals, to break open the scrolls. It's the one who is worthy because he's the lamb that was slain. And in Revelation chapter 5, you see that the impending judgment on the earth, which I happen to refer to as Babylon, is going to happen soon. And as a result of the judgment that is coming, we know that the judgments are all placed as a title deed in the hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why? Because Jesus is the very one who spoke all things into existence. He's the one who takes water, turns it into wine. He's the one who takes a dead man, makes him live. He's the one who has the title of the earth. If there's going to be something new, it's going to be through, by, and for Jesus Christ. The name above all names, the one in which every knee before heaven and earth will bow. See the picture? And so you got this glorious picture of the, what we're waiting for. Now, interesting, hop over to chapter 6, and as you look at Revelation chapter 6, you get a little brief section there. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, I think that we can learn a ton from. Now listen, in terms of timeline, I don't think we're here yet, but I don't think because we're not there yet, we can't learn from it. Okay, so I'm not saying that this is the present reality, but I am saying I think it gives us a glimpse as to paradise or heaven today. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, so Christ is in the process of opening seals. It says, I saw under the altars the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So what is it? John says, I see people who have been slain. They've been martyred because of the name of Christ. Now, that's the gospel. The gospel calls people to die, to surrender their lives, to yield their lives for the sake of Christ. Christ clearly tells his disciples, Paul clearly warns the church that to love Christ is to be persecuted. We see that. Now, we don't necessarily understand that completely in our culture, but what John clearly sees and perceives, there are many martyrs. There are hundreds of martyrs every day dying across the world for the sake of Christ. And when you take hundreds of days over the course of a year, that makes thousands upon thousands. Friends, there's going to be thousands upon thousands upon millions upon millions of martyrs who their blood is going to be avenged because of Christ. And that's the request that's being made as the fifth seal is open. The martyrs are there making a request. And what are they requesting? They're requesting that their, their witness would be judged and vindicated. And so the reality is, is because they were killed for the purpose of Christ, they're asking the Christ, the one who opens the seals, that brings about the punishment that vindicates his purposes to do it swiftly. Hey, we were killed. Hey, go judge Babylon. Go judge the world that did this to us. Which is interesting. How does John know that these martyrs were the martyrs they were? Continue on. It says, they cried out with a loud voice 
That's the martyrs. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it says, then they were each, verse 11, given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So the deal is, is that while they want the earth to be judged and their martyrdom to be vindicated, the goal was, no, you sit over there and rest a while. And again, here's a white robe, which we see multiple times in Scripture, clothed in white. Now, the reason that they are waiting is because of God's purposes and timing, which we'll talk about in just a second. But look at the latter part of verse 11. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we see that this timing, this timeline is going to continue on. But as we look at this, there's a few things that we can learn. The very first one that just intrigues me, and I want to put up verse 9 again so you can see it. And so as I look at verse 9, Revelation 6, 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Now, just read that to yourself and then ask the question real quick to yourself. I'll give you 30 seconds. Hey, what can I learn from this particular text right there, that verse about the heavenly reality we'd have today? What can I learn? Just look at it. You have to look closely. And then ask yourself a couple of questions. This is how you examine scripture. This is how you prepare a message. Look and learn right there. Now, I presume that you're going, I don't know what I'm supposed to see. So let me tell you what you should see. Here it is. How, how do they know that they're martyrs who had been slain? Like, how, how do you differentiate that? Like, when you get to heaven and everyone's there, how do you know who was a martyr and who wasn't a martyr? How do you decipher that? How do you decide that? Like, do they all have a mark on themselves? No, I think the reality is this, is one thing you could take to just be true is that when you're absent from this body and presence of the Lord, not only is the Lord there and Jesus is right hand, not only are the elders there in a spectacular sight, but I also believe you're going to know the people that are there with you. And you're clearly going to know enough about their stories to be able to see whether or not they had done this or that for Christ in their lifetime. Now, the reason I think that's important is because you see other examples in Scripture to where there seems to be some indication as to where, whether or not we'll know one another. Um, I, I liken it to uh, the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, which you don't have to go and read about, but um, you've got Peter, James, and John who go up to the, on the mountain with Jesus, and, and they, they're going to appear before God. And it says, at, at his right and his left hand were Elijah and Moses. Which is the question, well, how do they know that it's Elijah and Moses? Which is another question, if you remember that Jesus comes to Thomas after his resurrection. And what does he say to Thomas? He says, Thomas, it is I, the Christ. So what do we learn from those brief experiences as well as Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 11? Well, here's the deal. We learn that to be asked for this body is to be present with the Lord, but when we're present with the Lord, we will likely be able to see and recognize some semblance of one another that reminds us of who we are. Now, if you look closely at verse 10, I think it's important to see that they cry out with a loud voice, loud voice that the Lord would judge and avenge their blood. Now, when you look at that, I think it's important to note that they're asking that God would avenge their blood. Now, why? Well, because 
they're asking for the vindication of God's name upon the earth. But more than that, what's interesting is, is they want it now. That also helps me understand that they can, one, have some semblance of time in the heavens. The second thing is, even though I've wavered on this over the years, and we just rightfully confess, I, 10 years ago, I might have saw it differently. I do believe wholeheartedly, this is just my opinion, you may not agree, that they can see something that's happening on the earth. They have some idea of what it is because they're asking in particular moments in time, will you do this now? So they have an idea of time and it seems to be that they can rightfully see what's happening on earth to a point they would desire the avenging of blood. Now, why do they, why do they want the avenging of blood? Because they want the Babylon, the world system we live in, to be gone and they want the Eden we once had in the first heaven to be restored. So they want to return to the Edenic covenant. And God says, wait, go rest a little while, put on your white robe and wait. Now, the question you got to ask yourself is why is God waiting? Well, Peter tells us that the reason God waits is that no one would perish apart from God. We know that one of the reasons God is not acting swiftly in his judgment is because he longs that no one dies apart from him. Which now take back this thought, if God is dwelling among his people in the Old Testament through the temple and the tabernacle and burning bushes and moments on Sinai, how is he dwelling among the people now? Through the church. You and I, we are the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth, which means if God is going to bring about salvation on the earth, how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through you and me, which is why we've got to be set apart. It's why we've got to be different. It's why we've got to have a heavenly hope. Paul says in Colossians chapter three, lift your eyes to the heavens, look above where Christ is seated. Why? Because if we get caught up in this Babylon world system, which is so easy to do, we don't put out the hope and the light and the salt that we were called to. And as a result, we, we don't make the bride of Christ look good. As a result of that, it means that others may not see the glorious hope of the gospel and the hope of heaven. If we think this is our hope and we live as if this is it, then why would anyone desire more? And so the heavenly reality is, is, hey, we are in a waiting game right now that Christ's purposes might be revealed through the earth. And he's doing that, not necessarily through signs and wonders, which is all we want. Don't we all want some sign? Don't we all want some wonder? We don't want God to confirm something so clearly to us. Listen, he has, and he's done it through his word and through his people and through his spirit. And so we live in a day of waiting, but God will eventually vindicate his purposes. And as he does so, we wait. Now, one other quick place I want to go just to kind of give us a better view of even our reality today is in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 22, there's a parable that Jesus tells, and he tells it about two men. One of them is a man named Lazarus, which is the poor man, and then there's another man who's a rich man, and Jesus is going to tell a parable. We can learn a few things about it, even as we have in Revelation chapter 6. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 22. He says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Your Bible may say Abraham's bosom, or you might have heard it referred to as Abraham's bosom. Um, it says then, The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
Now remember, this is a parable. So Jesus is telling us the parable. And we can say definitively that Lazarus and Abraham are recognizable, although it would be hard-pressed to make the case that they aren't. So we can't definitively say with confidence this is exactly what it is, but there is a parable in here for a reason. And the reason is a poor man who's died and carried away by the angels and a rich man who's carried away into Hades, what we would call hell. And we know that he is in torment. And as he's in torment, he lifts his eyes up. Another reality we would determine. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Now, I don't believe that just as we're not in the new heaven, I don't believe that the finality of hell has also been established. What I can say, and I would say with confidence, that right now, glorious, a glorious place is heaven or paradise, and one that is full of agony and torment, and the desire to, to rid yourself of is Hades. Hell, if you want to call it that. So there's a chasm, though, in between. And what's interesting is Abraham replies after this rich man says, hey, can you bring Lazarus to just dip my tongue? Like, just give me something, a little relief. Abraham replies and says, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus and like man are bad things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Underline these next three words, and it's been fixed. A chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So, it appears from the text in Luke 23, the thieves on the cross, one would have gone to Hades and one would have went to be with God in paradise. One would experience a new hope, freedom from sin, an incredible sight, um, certainly uh, would ex experience the ability to know and recognize other people, would have some semblance and idea of time and space and certainly have some recollection and desire for God to establish the new kingdom. Outside of that, we don't have a ton of info, but we can speculate on a handful of things. What we also know, though, that just as the thief on the cross who experienced paradise, there was one who, like this rich man, experienced torment and agony. Now, what do we know about torment and agony as a result? Well, one is that it is exactly that. It is, it is not a place that any of us would desire to go. And so when Paul says that this, our salvation is today, friends, we should take heed of that. When James says our life is but a vapor, it comes and it goes, you should take heed of that. Friends, I did a funeral this week for a guy who last Sunday this time looked as if he had 20 or 30 years ahead of him. The reality is, is you and I don't know the day and the hour. You and I have no idea. So our confidence, our hope should not be in this place or in our hope or our dreams here, but our hope is a heavenly reality when we put it in Christ, and we should. The second thing, and this is one that I think is very important, is that whatever decision we make, there's a great chasm between heaven and Hades, and that chasm is fixed. What that means is, is after you have a chance at grace in this life, there is no further chance. Now, if you grew up in the Catholic faith, you've been taught 
that through Mary and through other saints that you could venerate the judgment of other friends or people that you love, hoping that in some ways you could move them from a place of purgatory to another final resting place. And listen, I can't see anywhere in Scripture where that's a truth that should be held on to. Now, that might frustrate you. I pray that it's not frustrating as it is eye-opening. That if you're going to have a belief that you live by, that is a belief that comes rightly, foundationally out of God's word. This story alone in Luke chapter 16 between the rich man and Lazarus takes all of that and just blows it up in one fell swoop. Why? Because it's a fixed chasm, meaning that what you do now determines your next life. If you don't trust Christ now, then you'll die apart from him. If you trust Christ today, you'll live forever. Let me say it this way. If you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once. The key is, as Jesus said to Lazarus in John chapter 3, you want to be born again? Lift your eyes to the heavens. Now what's interesting is, lift your eyes to the cross. Now real quick, as we wrap up. The heaven that was, was Eden. It's no more. Can we all agree on that? It's no more because of sin and because of the removal of the tree of life. This is the next heaven. We'll unpack this more next week. Look at it in Revelation chapter 21. It says this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no, no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If you read further down in Revelation 21, there is something that is absent today that is present in the new heaven and the new earth. It was there in the Garden of Eden as well. And it's the tree of life. So just real quickly, let me just fill in the gaps for you. Tree of life exists in Eden. Sin destroys it. Not the tree of life, but the ability to be in God's presence. We look forward to God's presence, dwelling with God and God with us. And the tree of life exists then. The only thing in the chasm between the, what used to be and what will be is the tree that bore death and gives life. It is the cross. And it is the cross of Christ that gives us a future hope. And friends, if you haven't put your faith in the cross of Christ, you should. And we look forward to being with Christ. And because of his grace in which we have received, not because of our works, but because of what he has done for us, we can have a relationship with him. Now, one other interesting thing, as we have a relationship with him, I think it would be this. Why would you long to be something other than he's called you to be? Now, you might go, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, I think oftentimes we think, well, if I escape the present reality on earth and I'm with God, then he's going to make me something different like an angel. 
But in everything we've read today, the martyrs, Lazarus, rich man, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, you see the picture here? None of them have moved from one thing to a completely different thing like an angelic being. Now, why is that important? It's important for a few quick reasons. One is it seems to be that what you are now is going to be a semblance of to come and eventually a new glorified and new resurrected body for all of eternity. Until then, unfortunately, Clarence is wrong. And every time a bell rings, an angel does not get his wings. And so as a result of that, I think we have to be cautious about when a loved one dies, permeating a false hope that Aunt Sally has now gotten her wings and she's an angel. And God's, he's, he's received a whole nother angel. No, listen, he, he hasn't. And I think that some way brings comfort to our hearts. And I'm not trying to rip your comfort apart. But what I'm saying is if you're looking forward to Aunt Sally getting her wings, you're putting your comfort in the wrong place. And while I do believe the martyrs and potentially those in heaven can see some semblance of what's going on, I do not believe you can prove anything in Scripture, nor do I feel compelled to believe this, that anyone becomes an angel so they can oversee someone they love. I think that's a false hope as well. Why? Because we have a God who his eyes range to and fro throughout the earth, and he sees and he knows those who love him. And friends, if he tells you, I'll never leave nor forsake you, I do not believe the God who created everything we see and know, the things we don't see and know, the one who created everything outside of time into time, I don't think he needs our loved ones to help him. And I don't think we as the church need to consistently permeate a false hope among brothers and sisters in the world who need the real hope. Because it would be devastating for a friend of mine who was a rich man who thought he was blessed on this earth just like the rich man in Lazarus story because he was a Jew. And because he was a Jew and he had great wealth and riches, he thought, oh, I've got it. I'm, I'm certainly, I'm, I'm already, I've already got it signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm in. To get there and hear the word, depart from me for I never knew you. And then for them to believe, oh, but, but my, my guardian angel Brandon was watching over me. Man, if that's what people learn from my life, what a tragedy. Which means, as we leave here, we should have a better view of what is happening now. So the heaven today is not what it was, and it's not what it will be. What will it be? New. Glorified. I'll tell you more about it next week. You should come. <laughs> but until then, make sure that we are the hope among the hopeless. That we are the light in the darkness. We are the salt among a world that's lost its flavor. I don't know about you, but if you can encourage me this time next week, I think I can walk with the Lord for six days and not stumble too, by, too, too mightily. Can we do that? For six days, go, Lord, give me the strength and the encouragement, and then hey, we're going to gather again next week, and we're going to do it all over again until the Lord calls us home. That's what the church is about. And if you've been missing that, Man, this is a place where we can encourage one another. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you for today and for the glorious hope of what will be. Lord, what will be doesn't reduce what we can experience now, although your desire is to give us so much more. 
And we look forward to that day. Until then, God, would you help us to live faithfully for here? We know that there's people who need light, hope, and salt, yet we would also desire to be asking of the body to be praised of the Lord, which is far better. Like, Lord, there's a wrestle. There's, there's part of us that we long to be here, but Lord, we also want to be with you. Lord, I pray that if that's not a reality for us, that it will be. And I pray most of all today that, Lord, you would help us not to learn more about heaven, just to be better scholars, but, Lord, to be able to tell others about the hope we have in Christ and that our citizenship is kept in heaven and, and that we, we don't get there because we're good. We are absolute thieves on the cross. We, we deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve separation. The finality of our punishment should already be nailed, yet you and your grace meet us in our darkness and our sin, and you give us a new life when we trust you. And I pray today people would trust you and follow you, and they would give their hope and life to you. And maybe right now they're conflicted with science, or they're conflicted with the world and their hopes and their dreams and their partying and their fun. Lord, I don't know where people are. You do, and I pray you would meet them right where they are. And just as you called Lazarus from his grave in John 11, I pray that you would take dead men today and make them alive in Christ. We love you. We need you. You're our hope. You're our shield. You're our defender. You're our strength. And you're the one we sing to. In Jesus' name we pray.